Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, let me encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Exodus. We're in chapter 1 of Exodus as we are now into the second week of our ongoing series. And as you're turning in your Bibles here in the sanctuary, I want to encourage the rest of our church family worshiping in the Family Life Center to turn in your Bibles as well. Um, And those who are tuning in online, uh, find a Bible, find a device somewhere and turn to Exodus chapter 1. And we will read in just a few moments these words that emerge from sacred scripture. Uh, Before we do, let me give you a disclaimer for today's sermon. There's a lot of Bible today. And I don't know if I should just warn you, apologize, or let you, let you know from the beginning. Um, if, if you're not uh, a fan of, of the book, today is not your day. But Baptists are people of the book, amen? So today we are going to dive headlong and then we're going to immerse. There's another Baptist word for you. We're going to immerse ourselves into the Holy uh, word. And, and, and as we do, I'll remind you, today is week number two of our ongoing series in Exodus. We began last week, and if you missed last week, I really encourage you to, to tune in and watch that sermon only for this reason. In that sermon, I, I lay out the kind of the, the topography of the text. I describe the movements and the the divisions, the sections of this entire book so that we can know how we're navigating through this entire book for the next 24 more weeks. Someone last, well, uh, so we groaned last week when I told you we're in this for 25 weeks. So today the title of the sermon is Groan. And and I thought, what better place to begin an in-depth study of the book of Exodus than the New Testament writing of Romans chapter 8. So don't turn there. I just want you to hear these words. Hear these words and let them fall upon your ears as it sets the context of our study today. Romans 8, beginning in 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption. Now, today I'm thinking about the word groan in this peculiar calling that God has called me uh, to devote my life to, I have 
become privy to a variety of groans in this human journey. In fact, groan has kind of an onomatopoeia feel to it, doesn't it? If you say it in just the right way, it, it, the word can make you feel what it attempts to convey. Groan. You hear that? Will you just say it with me for just a moment? Say groan. That's good. I need some back row basses to say groan. Very nice. There is, there is a groaning that is at the very heart of the human condition. I'm thinking about 1999, and Laura and I are traveling between Kenya and Uganda, and we, we go to this border, this transition, maybe about a half a mile of transition between those two countries. And at that checkpoint, there are all kinds of, of persons who will come up to the car, security agents, official government, uh, employees, beggars. I remember one man, a leper, and we knew that he had leprosy because I, I won't forget the, the sight of, of what was really only nubs left on his hands as he knocked on the window and I heard him groan. I'm thinking today about the kind of groaning that emerges and moves down the hallways of the Fistula Hospital in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It's a hospital. Do you know what fistula is? Fistula is it's a condition that comes to young girls who are violently attacked and raped. And this hospital devoted to their physical, emotional, and mental repair. And as I remember our visit to the Fistula Hospital, I, I can sense the kind of groan that comes from repairing both the body and the mind. I'm thinking about a young boy, an autistic boy, who we met at the Sisters of Charity Orphanage there in the capital city of Ethiopia. And we were there with the sisters, the Catholic sisters, who had chosen to take in the very poorest of the poor in the world. They have no one left. And there, there we were, and we would blow bubbles and, and play with balloons that we blew up to attempt to love for just a little while, these children. And there was one who was in his own world of fear and darkness and on the front porch, sequestered by himself. I can still hear his, um, his groans. But you don't have to go across the world to know the kind of groaning that I'm talking about when we read from Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation groans. All you got to do is go to Sunday school at Johns Creek Baptist and in Sunday school usually there's a moment when the community leader will say, are there any prayer requests? And you hear someone raise their hand and say, yes, I have a coworker and her daughter is eight years old and has been diagnosed with and in that room, because we love one another, we, mm. This morning, even in our deacons meeting, that room filled with people who care about you and about one another and about the people you care about, one or two times a prayer request was lifted and I felt behind me your deacons as they audibly mm, groaned at the sound of the sight or the, the mention of those who are going through. You don't even have to be in a room. You can hold the hand of someone who you know 
who's gone through a thing, right? And their family member no longer has made room for them. They're finished, they're done. Or they have a, a child and the, the child has just gone off the, the rails and they can't seem to get them back on the rails. There's a groan that you know about or perhaps you, like we, have been beside the bed of someone you love, a family member, a, a friend, a church member, as they take the last few groans from this world and carry them into the next. See, I, I say all that today because I'm thinking about groaning in this text because when we move back to the book of Exodus, the entire story, the entire saga of this journey from oppression to liberation begins with groaning. It begins with groaning. So today we're talking about groan. And to help you navigate this sermon that I've entitled Groan, I want to give you three handles to hold on to, three kind of words that will help you navigate where we are. And here is where we are when we're talking groan today. I want to talk about midwives, deep sighs, and bad moons rising. Midwives, deep sighs, and bad moons rising. First, Midwives. There was no one more powerful in all of Egypt than Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the most powerful ruler of the region. In fact, the Pharaohs were known as the sons of the gods. In fact, every one of the edifices that he would build toward himself and, and, and erect because of the slave labor that he had at his disposal, all of the, the larger-than-life statues and monuments were to remind those for miles around who could see these, these structures that there was no one who had as much power and authority and strength as Pharaoh. Yet when we open up this text, we find him shaking in his sandals with fear. Listen to the words as they come from Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that were imposed upon them. Can you feel the groaning that emerges, that rises up from 
the text, the groaning that emerges from underneath the, the, the thumb of Pharaoh's oppression. And yet Pharaoh, with all of the power at his disposal, we find him shaking in his boots or in his sandals with fear because of the way he thinks about the Israelites. You know, they're just kind of different. And because they're different, I mean, they, they can't really be trusted, can they? This is what happens to us when we don't look at people who are different through the eyes of understanding, but rather through the eyes of suspicion. If we don't look at one another hoping or seeking to understand something about someone who is different than us, I mean, gosh, they, they talk different than us, their families look different than us, they... They talk about God in different ways than we talk about God. And at supper time, uh, the aroma that comes from their kitchen smells very different with those spices than the aroma that emerges from our kitchen. They're so very different. But if we don't seek to understand those who are different, we are one step away from seeing them through the eyes of suspicion. Well, I don't understand them, but can anybody really understand them? I mean, can you really trust? And then we're a step away from mistrust. And when we're a step away from mistrust, then we're a step away from paranoia. Well, you really got to watch. You really got to watch. And we're a step away from there to defensiveness. And when, when we don't look upon someone who is different with the eyes of understanding and we become suspicious and then our suspicion leads to fear and our fear leads to defensiveness, the next step or two or three removed from that step is simply, you know, we really need to get rid of these. I think of 1939 and Nazi Germany. I think about how the extermination of six million Jews didn't begin with the final solution as it was later named. It began with, you know, are we sure we want this family's business on our storefront? Can they really be trusted? These sons and daughters of Israel in 1939 and one emotion of suspicion leads to another. Then we're five steps, four steps, three steps, two steps away from extermination. And I think about the civil war in Rwanda the Hutus and the Tutsis, and how the Hutus didn't begin with blatant extermination of that entire race of people, but instead began to talk about them differently, began to use different words to describe their neighbors. They called them tall trees and grasshoppers and roaches, cockroaches. Well, if you can begin to think of a whole people group as cockroaches, you're only three or four steps away from agreeing with policy that would exterminate them. And that's exactly what happened in the Rwandan genocide. And as we open up the first chapter of Exodus, we have the first example of this very action underway. Pharaoh doesn't begin with an extermination plan. He begins with actually talking about them differently. Don't know if you noticed, but in the beginning, we are talking about Israelites. And Pharaoh is talking about the Israelites. You've got to watch the Israelites. But later, in just a few moments, you're going to begin to see how he changes what he even calls them. He calls them Hebrews. Hebrews had a pejorative kind of uh, sound to it. Hebrews, this, that's that nameless hopeless, marginalized group of people, the Hebrews, you know. 
And it begins with how we speak. So listen to what he says about the Hebrews. Continuing in verse 20 or verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're just different. They're not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they just give birth. They have babies, you know, they be, because before the midwives even come, they've, they've had their, their babies. And the people, so God dealt with, well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. This is an amazing part of the story, these midwives. They have names. Shifra and Puah. And we don't know if they were Hebrew or Egyptian. The text says that they were Hebrew midwives. But what does that really mean? I mean, were they midwives who were Hebrew? Or were they Egyptians whose job it was to be midwives to the Hebrews? They were Hebrew midwives. Don't really know. The text is a little ambiguous. But I kind of like the fact that the text is ambiguous because what's about to unfold in the midwives, what's about to happen through them is no respecter of ethnicity or nationality. The thing that we're about to watch emerge and happen in them can happen in any who yield before God a willing heart. What's most fascinating about the text, however, is, is not any of those things, but rather the fact that we know their names at all. Do you know that we don't even know the name of Pharaoh at this part of the story? The writer of this story chooses to not even name the Pharaoh. In fact, in this part of the story, he's not even called Pharaoh. He's called the king of Egypt. Very generic. But the writer deliberately makes sure that three millennia later, you and I are still calling by name these two women who are heroines of the faith. That raises a question, doesn't it? It raises a question about what what is power and what is weakness? It raises a question because by all standards of the world around Pharaoh, Pharaoh was the most powerful man full of authority and strength, and these women were nobodies. And yet, we don't know his name, and you and I are still talking about Shifra and Puah. Because what they did was deliver not just babies, they delivered one who would be the deliverer of their people. Can I just suggest to you that if you've gotten to the place in your journey where you assume that your posture in life is meaningless. 
If you've come to the place where you have ever felt as if you have no significance, no influence, there's a sense in which maybe in your family you're the one who doesn't have the voice. Or, or maybe uh, a voice of influence. Or maybe in your, in your workplace you were passed over and you keep getting passed over for this promotion or this, this increase. Or maybe in your sphere of, of friendships you're always the follower and you're never the one leading and you feel like you're, you're playing, you know, you're in the second seat all the time. Can I just suggest to you that you're in good company with Shifra and Puah because in the Bible, both here and all weaved throughout the biblical narrative, True power emerges in surprising places. In fact, in the Bible, power is never really defined by the economy of power in this world. Paul says that if you really want to have true strength, well, in Christ, true strength is found in weakness. Because when we are weak, for whatever reason, We're at a place of vulnerability, and in that vulnerability, when we are weak, we have created a venue in our lives in which the strength of God can set up camp and live and thrive and do what only the strength of God can do through us, not because we're strong or anything much to speak of, but because we're weak. In another place, he said, this is why we talk about it as like a a treasure in clay jars. These Hebrew midwives, we're still talking about them because they feared God. They recognized that they were confronted by a human authority that put them in conflict with a divine authority. They recognized that they had come to a place where there was an expectation upon them that put their life in direct conflict with with the, the authority of God. And, and herein is what I refer to as faith by subversion. All throughout this biblical narrative, I want you to remember, we have this Bible because it was written by weak people. We have this Bible because it emerged out of seasons and contexts of oppression. From start to finish, over the hundreds of years it took to get into the final form that you and I have it, it always emerged from a story or a context of suffering or oppression. Whether that oppressive empire was Egypt or the Babylonians after them, or or the Assyrians rather after them, or the Babylonians after the Assyrians, or the Persians after them, or the Greeks after them, or Rome after them. All throughout the development of our Holy Scripture, these stories emerge as the witness of those who are doing faith in a context in which the empire says there is a way of life we demand of you. And again and again throughout that holy book, there is the witness of our sisters and brothers in the faith who have said, look, there are moments when the empire that is in charge of this world has a way of life that it expects of you. But there are moments when your faith will put you in direct conflict with the way of life that's demanded of you by the empire of the day. And in those moments, it matters what you do. And I'm I'm just here to tell you that if you follow Jesus Christ, If you are one of his followers who says, look, I I yield my life to a way of life 
that Jesus demands of me, then I promise you sooner or later, your way of life will put you in conflict with some perceived human authority in your life. And that human authority may be your family, it may be your workplace, that human authority may be simply your your position in life, or your sphere of influence, or your peer group of friends at school, because that can have a kind of authority over us. And there will be moments in which the imperial power of those human authorities will make you feel as if you have no choice but to follow the way of Pharaoh. But there is emerging from the grave the risen one who says there is another way. So the midwives, well, they, they give birth to babies, right? They help babies be born. But more than that, midwives, Shifra and Pua, they helped give birth to a way of life. They helped give birth to faith in God. And you and I are called to be midwives in this world. You and I are called to be midwives for the kingdom of God. Because we will and will continue to always live in an empire that has certain demands and expectations about what it means to be alive. But if we are followers of Jesus, we are midwives helping God birth into this world the grace and the compassion and the mercy and the reconciliation and the love that this world needs. We are practicing faith through subversion. Do you see what I'm saying? So be a midwife for grace. Be a midwife for reconciliation and, and, and hope in a world that has put a demand upon you to simply look like the empire of the day. So that's movement one, which leads us not only to midwives, but to deep sighs. Pharaoh's first plan was foiled, but he did not give up. We continue to read about his plan B as we read in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. Uh, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance and to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and uh, find you a, a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? 
Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take the child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. I love this part of our saga. It's filled with sighs. You know that a sigh is simply another kind of groan, don't you? A sigh, you know, a like when you get close to 12 o'clock and the pastor says, that's point number one. <sighs> you don't amen that. That's not. This text is filled with sighs. Could you hear it? She gives birth and the text says, she thinks the baby's a fine baby. Well, what mother doesn't think that their baby's a fine baby? Every baby, well, everyone I know is ugly as sin. There's not a single fine baby. They all look like Winston Churchill, every single one of them. But here's a mama, and you can't change a mama's mind. Oh, it's a fine, fine baby. And she, she sighs. But then she has another sigh, I believe. That sigh turns to a sigh of anguish because she knows the law and she is supposed to place him in the river. So she does, kinda. And she takes a basket and covers it with waterproofing so that it might float. Where else have you heard a story about destruction that's coming, about watery chaos that's gonna cover the world, and there is now a floating vessel. And in this miniature ark, she places her fine baby the hope of her people. I wonder how long she made sure that the basket was waterproof. I wonder how much time she took going down to the bank during those three months to test it out. How long did you take to make sure the car seat was put in right when you drove home for the first time from the hospital? Here she is. And I think when she puts it in the... Re I think she sighs. I think she... But it's a different sigh. It's a bated breath. Because there are crocs in that water. And there's turbulence in that water. And, and you never know, once you relinquish your child into the waters of life, what current will take them where. Somebody ought to groan right there. Yes. So with bated breath, she sighs. And then big sister watching from the reeds sees that Pharaoh's daughter comes down where she does routinely to bathe. And she finds the baby. The maid brings her the baby. She opens it up. And the Pharaoh's daughter sighs with pity. She knows what her father has asked for. She's supposed to dump the baby back over into the water. But she's a teenage daughter. So her sigh is a sigh of rebellion. Ha and she sighs, a resilient sigh against empire itself, right? And from the reeds, the big sister sees there may be hope. And she can't sigh because she's out of breath running to get to Pharaoh's daughter to say, I know a, I know a nurse. You, you want me to 
And she goes to get the baby's mother, who has a sigh of relief. My baby is home. And then when he grows and and she has to return him back to the hands of empire, she sighs with anger. How long will this go? And the text says that by the end, she gives the baby a name, Pharaoh's daughter does. I'll name you Moshe, Moses, because I drew you out, which I find fascinating. This one who will grow up and draw out the people from slavery is named the one drawn out, which brings me to a moment. Can I just ask you, all of the sighing, that has brought you to where you are today. All of the sighs of hope and hurt, all of the sighs of praise and pain, everything that has been the cumulative sigh of your life and has brought you to this place, can I just suggest to you that no sigh is unredemptive. Every sigh that you have sighed or others have sighed for you has a shaping power to make you live up to the name that God has given you. Every sigh that preceded Moses was a sigh that was making him ready to be named the one drawn out so that he can draw out. You can't draw someone out unless you've been drawn out. I just want you to know whatever sigh it is that has left you in a place of disappointment or maybe kind of this, maybe you live with this kind of low-grade fever of disappointment through, through most of your life and you're just like kind of, I'm telling you that no sigh goes unheard, that every sigh that you have sighed yourself has a shaping power so that you might live into the name that you've been given. Well, we know what happens with Moses. He grows up. One day he sees this Egyptian beating up on this Hebrew, so he steps in and he kills the Egyptian. Well, meanwhile, these two Hebrews watch this thing happen. And they, they see this thing happen, and the next day they're in an argument, and Moses comes to try to break them up, and one of them says, what, are you going to kill us too? And now his secret's out, and Moses kind of freaks out a bit. And Pharaoh now finds out and is after Moses, and he runs away. He goes to another country, Midian. And something interesting happens in Midian. Now he's an adult, and he comes to this place where these women are watering their herd. And he walks up, and he notices these shepherds who come and essentially bully these women away. And they begin to water, and he stands up for them. He takes care of it, which for me is powerful, because, you know, if your life has been characterized by one sigh after the next, it sensitizes you to recognize the sighs of other people. If you've been one who has been brought out, you know something about what it means to bring someone else out. Well, the father of the daughters was impressed, welcomes him in, gives one of his daughters to be married. And then we come to this wonderful line at the end of that text in chapter 2 where Moses offers these words. He says, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land, which essentially means what is going on? with me in my life. I don't. And here he is at this crisis of identity and he's like, you know, there are some days when I, I feel like I'm a Hebrew, but I'm, I'm not. Because some days I'm among the Hebrews and I feel more Egyptian because I was raised in that house of privilege. 
And there are other days when I'm with the Egyptians and I'm not because I'm just, I feel like there's something in me trying to wake up from, from long ago. And, and then other days I'm over here in Midian and, and, and I've got this new home, but something in me is aching about where I used to be. I'm like a stranger in a foreign land. And I just want you to know that if you've ever felt or right now feel that level of lostness, that level of what is happening in You are in the perfect posture for the rescue of God. It's only when we come to that level of helplessness, like where am I? Where is this going? I have no idea what's happening. I feel like a stranger in, my, in, a, in a foreign land. It's in those moments when you're vulnerable enough to receive the rescue of God. So something's happening, something's emerging. The table is set, the stage is ready for the last movement of the sermon. Is anybody ready for the last movement of the sermon? Say yes. Okay, don't say it so enthusiastically. Last movement, bad moons rising. Because the table is set. There is a bad moon rising because every kingdom of this world that is under the illusion that it is ultimately in charge, they've got a bad moon on the rise. Because there is a text that ends our story today that changes everything about the, the course of human hope from that moment forward. Listen to these words as they come to us from verse 23. After a long time the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out, out of the slavery of their, uh, out of slavery, uh, out of their cry, the help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. The best part of this entire text today is that no groan goes unnoticed that there is a groan that kind of simmers underneath the surface down below under the reign of every empire you pick your empire every power and principality that seems to convince us that we are living in only one pathway to peace pax romana pax pharaoh we whatever it is there is this groan underneath the thumb of pharaoh and Caesar and emperor, there is this groan. How long, O oh Lord? But this text says that, that groan doesn't stay grounded. It rises. It rises and makes its way to the ears of the Lord who hears the groan. Now, the verse that we began this sermon with in chapter 8 of Romans, I read about half of it. It's this verse here. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the, the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait. But there is a second part to this, a second part to this, this, this promise in, in Romans 8, and it reads, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. If you're at a place where in your isolation and fear and, and, and despair you feel as if you're groaning alone, 
sighing alone, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that this is a God who not only hears your groans, but matches pitch with it. The cross of Jesus Christ says that we love and are loved by a God who not only has heard the groans of all creation, but has chosen to take on those groans in his own mortal body that we may lean toward a day when the groans are no more. So what do we do? Maybe we pray like this. Maybe we say, look, I don't know how to pray as I ought. It's okay. The text says just groan. Just groan. Just groan your way. And in the groaning, I think this could be our collective prayer. God, I, I recognize that you're calling us to be midwives in a world that seems to, to be convinced that it has ultimate authority, that the way of life in the empire is not your way of life. And I know that you're calling me to be a midwife to help you birth grace and peace and love and reconciliation. I see that, but, but I've got a sigh here because it's not that easy. And I admit to you I want to, but it comes with risk. Help me to be sensitized to the sighs of others and even the sigh in me so that I can proclaim with confidence that every kingdom of this world has a bad moon rising. Because one day, the kingdoms of this earth shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and of his Christ. And he shall reign forevermore. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do pray that that would be our prayer, that there would be that level of relinquishment and faith that we might yield our lives before you and, and recognize, Lord, sometimes we misread it. Sometimes we assume that the way of Pharaoh is the only way because it's so convincing. Show us that in the face of any human authority, there is another authority rising up to proclaim a better truth. Show us how to be midwives of grace. Show us this day how to yield our life in such a way that your kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>